0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. How would your portfolio cope with a severe economic shock? We've picked out five different scenarios to stress test your finances, including recessions, depressions and sky-high inflation.
1: I want to know how to think about these tail risks and what we can do to prepare. And in today's dumb question of the week, why haven't wealth preservation funds preserved wealth this year? All right, let's get into it. So we're actually a little bit delayed recording today, Robin, because you had to put up with your neighbour feeding trees into a wood chipper, and I had an almighty thunderstorm overhead. Now, both those noises are ominously appropriate for talking about catastrophic economic scenarios, aren't they? (laughs) The wood chipper and the thunderstorm.
0: I'm not sure what economic thing the
1: wood chipper would represent. Just our money being fed into the chipper.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that would be inflation, I guess.
1: But the reason we've chosen this week to talk about stress tests is because last week the Bank of England came out with the results of their own stress test where they look at all the banks in the UK and how well they're set up to weather an economic shock.
0: Now I'm about to be quite dismissive about this report, but before I do that, let me just point out why I think it is important. I think in the UK and elsewhere, everybody's trying to avoid what happened in 2008 and 2009, which was that the banking system... Amplified the problem. By which I mean we had a recession and banks couldn't lend through that recession because their balance sheets were impaired by having dodgy assets. What do I mean by dodgy assets? Well, they had a lot of subprime mortgages or they had worries about mortgages going bad. And as a result of that, banks de risked at precisely the time when they should have been at least helping to bail out the financial system, but also to lend to businesses.
1: So it turned the other way around and we had to bail out the banks rather than them bailing us out.
0: So what we're trying to avoid now is bailouts of banks by normal people. Usually it's the shareholders that now have to carry the can or the bondholders, people who've lent it money or bought its shares, rather than the taxpayer. And so the set of criteria that the Bank of England's using and also other central banks are basically geared around that problem. Are the balance sheets strong enough to take a big economic whack.
1: Yeah, the way the Bank of England phrases it is that the purpose is to measure the resilience of banks to a hypothetical, countercyclical scenario that includes a severe but plausible combination of adverse shocks. So it's kind of the reasonable worst-case scenario, I think.
0: And I think it's worth pointing out how the banks are scored. Now, the thing which they always talk about, which sounds technical but in fact is very simple, is called the CET1 ratio. Now, what that stands for is Common Equity Tier 1. Why does this matter? Well, what happened in 2008 was that banks had a lot of balance sheet leverage. To understand what that means, you have to understand how a balance sheet structured for a bank. So we'll just do a quick explainer of how that works. Okay. Keep us with you, Roman. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, this is really good. Okay, so you've got assets. Those are the things that you own which generate income. And in the case of banks, this is largely loans which they've made to businesses or to households. And then on the liability side, that's how you funded your assets. And that's what a company is. It's just assets to generate income, liabilities to fund those assets. And hopefully, if the value of the assets crashes, there's enough loss-absorbing liabilities to absorb those losses. Do you
1: need enough shareholders to take the pain?
0: And that's what it is. It's primarily shareholder equity. So if your assets fall by, say, 10% and you've got less than 10% equity on your balance sheet, well, it's equity and cash. If you've got less than 10% on the liability side, you're done, you're bankrupt.
1: And when you say the assets fall in value, do you kind of mean that the loans are going bad, people are not repaying them in time or in full?
0: Yeah. Either they can't repay or they won't repay or there's just no hope of ever getting the money back.
1: They've disappeared. You haven't got a mailing address for them. You're like, I don't think we're getting the money back here. Let's go take the house.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And the last thing the banks want is to get a house onto their balance sheet. They're not property managers. Not good ones, no. They don't want it. And often they have to take big impairments if they do take ownership of the house. So what the Bank of England and the Fed and the other central banks are trying to do is to ensure there's enough loss-absorbing capital on the liability side of the balance sheet.
1: Okay, well done, Roman. You've kept us with us. I understand everything that's going on there. But the thing is here, in this stress test, the Bank of England kind of cooks up a scenario, don't they? And let's just run through the scale of shock they're talking about. So their hypothetical scenario is that CPI inflation averages 11% for the first three years and peaks at 17%. So they're testing the banks against really, really high inflation. They also incorporate household real income falling by 13%. So people would have a lot less money to spend. And consequently, they forecast the bank rate going to 6% and then being cut to 3.5% later. Now that's the bit that people have questioned because we're already at 5% as a bank rate. But I think this test was designed about a year ago when rates were much lower, but
0: maybe it's not as stressful as it should be. Yeah, it's looking a lot more like a central case now, isn't
1: it? That element of it anyway. I think market's forecasting bank rate to go to 6.25% next year. And the other elements of the test are that real GDP would contract by 5%. Unemployment would more than double to over 8%. And UK property prices would fall by over 30%. So it's a pretty nasty scenario they're modelling against.
0: Yeah, it is extreme. And it does take into account that bad things often happen in succession and in clusters, which is great. I think all of that is very good. The way you said that
1: makes me think there's a buck coming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are a couple of problems with it. Let's start off with a little problem. I think one of the things they point out is that in this kind of scenario, whatever it is, there's going to be greater competition for deposits. In other words, banks are going to start paying more on their deposits. In that kind of environment, they say that the banks are going to carry on lending, or at least they're expected to be able to carry on lending to companies and households which aren't credit impaired so if people have good credit and of course some people will some companies will some households will those people should still be able to get loans but of course in this kind of environment when you've got a recession the demand for credit is going to be much smaller so all this is really doing is saying that for those very few people who are eligible for credit in this kind of adverse scenario the banks will be willing to lend to them and able to
1: I mean, you won't be surprised to learn that the Bank of England says all the major UK banks passed with flying colours, basically. I don't think they'd have designed the test if they didn't, right?
0: (laughs) Some of them kind of just squeeze through. There's a kind of twist in the report where they say, what are the bank's management actions in order to ensure that you're going to make it through this and have a capital ratio greater than this hurdle amount? For example, they could pay less dividend to their shareholders. That way they retain more cash. And remember that cash is loss absorbing They'd also reduce variable remuneration, which, if you're in the banking world, means bonus. Yeah, (laughs) there'd be no bonuses. Less bonuses. Less bonuses, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, let's be realistic. And reducing costs, which means firing people. So that's the kind of mitigation. And once they did that, they found that all the banks could pass the test. It was difficult for some of the banks, like HSBC, because they had more investment banking activity. And that would be curtailed by this kind of crisis.
1: Yeah, investment banks don't tend to be profitable, do they, in economic shocks?
0: And also, you're dividing by the risk-weighted assets. So when you work out this CET1 ratio, it's loss-absorbing capital divided by risk-weighted assets. What are risk-weighted assets? Well, it's all the stuff that could go dodgy, you know, loans, maybe even equity. All of that stuff will have a risk-weighting, and the dodgier it is, the higher the risk-weighting.
1: Yeah, this is the weird thing we've talked about before, isn't it, where government bonds have zero risk weighting. Yeah. Yeah, they proved very risky over the last year, and it was what did for some of the
0: American banks, like Silicon Valley Bank. And this brings me on to the big problem. Okay, so what is it that we're guarding against here? We're guarding against bad assets. Banks have been very careful since 2008 not to have too many bad assets on their balance sheet, because they had to. They had to have these CET1 ratios be high so that's why they've de-risked and they've shrunk their balance sheets. They've been very careful. But if you look at Silicon Valley Bank and look at its CET1 ratio just before it went down, it was pretty high.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you looked at Silicon Valley Bank just before it blew up, it had a lot of treasury, so US government bonds. It had a lot of mortgage-backed securities and agency debt. All these things are considered safe assets, but they did fall in value as interest rates rose.
0: Now, this wasn't a problem, really. The bank was still solvent long-term. They still had enough money to pay their creditors. The problem was liquidity. So what is it that makes people pull their money out of a bank during a bank run? Well, you're always thinking, is my money safe? And that was the problem with Silicon Valley Bank. Not all of the money was safe.
1: In this case, wasn't the cause of the bank run Peter Thiel and other West Coast billionaires saying, pull your money out of the bank, apparently.
0: But all of that was rational. People always talk about people who pull their money out of a bank as if they're some kind of excitable muppet. You know, they just get carried away. Oh, no, I'm going to lose my money, you know, and then they pull their money out. But I'd argue that it's a completely rational thing to do. It's rational
1: if you're above the deposit insurance level, right? If you're below the deposit insurance and the government's going to pay you back whatever happens, then you never need to run on your bank.
0: And that's the key problem with this report. Now, if you look through the report for the deposit guarantees for FSCS, it doesn't crop up once. Now, the one number I want to know after the U.S. banking crisis is what proportion of deposits exceed £85,000. That's all I want to know. I don't give a toss about CET1 ratio. <laughs> You know That's yesterday's crisis. What caused this bank run was people worried about their deposits not being covered. And at the moment, I suspect there's quite a lot of accounts where they exceed the 85k, in which case that's ripe for a bank run. And that means that if there's a slightest worry about the liquidity of a bank, it doesn't matter what it is, it doesn't matter if it's even true, it can spread like wildfire on social media and subsequently, it becomes rational for people to pull out their money. And once that starts, it's over. There's nothing that the bank can do at that point once belief in its credibility is eroded.
1: Why do I feel that one day you're going to run into Andrew Bailey and a Greggs and give him a real piece of your mind,
0: from? Own <laughs> <laughs> another thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mate, I'm just here to get a sausage roll. Leave me be. Well, there is something that the bank could do, the Bank of England, that is, and they could do the same thing as the Fed and just say, look, if this happens, all of the deposits are guaranteed, because then it stops being rational to take your money out. Or you come up with a scheme where you can give the central bank your securities, your guilts, and receive cash for them for a reasonable interest rate. And that way, you can essentially pay the people as they go out of the door. But that effectively stopped the US banking crisis, having that facility. I mean, when we looked at this report,
1: the thing we thought was, OK, how can we apply this to our own portfolios and stress test our own finances? And the thing that jumped out to me from the Bank of England scenario is that they were modelling equity prices, stock prices, to fall by 45%, which is kind of in line with history when you think about the global financial crisis, where, yes, yeah, stock values get cut in half.
0: Yep, so a 50% fall is something you should be expecting at some point. Now, if you're an equity investor, someone who's been through some of these crises in the past, then that'll be absolutely fine with you because you know it's coming. For people who are new to the market, who've only ever seen a rallying market or huge rallies following a very brief fall, you probably don't think it's going to be a big deal, but it can be. And it can take a long time for markets to recover, not just a month like it did in 2020. And the thing is, the psychological
1: effect is probably more than you expect if you've never been through it before. Even if you know it's coming, it's different when it really happens and your portfolio is really down 50% to not be tempted to sell on the way down.
0: Even now, if you look at what's happening for UK investors alone, let's just concentrate on the UK. If you've got a global index, it's essentially done nothing for over a year, maybe two years. And people are already saying, this is in our community chat. Why should I bother to buy equity? I don't think it's going to go anywhere. So the transition from equity is an absolutely fine thing. It generates high returns long term to, does it really work? Yeah. Roman, <laughs> 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 It's a very rapid one. Two years isn't very long. There are much longer periods in the past when you've had negative real returns for stocks.
1: Oh yeah, we'll get onto some of that. So let's go through our scenarios then. Let's start with the obvious one.
0: So stress test number one. A big global recession. Now, one example of that would be what happened in 2008, when it wasn't totally global. It was just Western countries. So it was Europe, it was the US, it was Japan, and it wasn't China. Or Australia. Or Australia, which is kind of China. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, in China, I think they call it the Western crisis. Do they? I think so. They certainly stopped asking Western people for advice about their banking system after that. But essentially what you have here is a synchronised slowdown globally. Why does it matter that it's synchronised? Well, it means that risk assets, stocks, corporate bonds, commodity currencies, all of them fall together. And that means there are less places to hide. You might think that by diversifying your portfolio globally, a stock portfolio, you could mitigate some of these losses. But in 2008, that just wouldn't have worked.
1: I mean, maybe we should kind of define what we mean by a global recession. So a recession is where you've got falling GDP, so economic activities
0: contracting, and you've got
1: a pickup in unemployment.
0: And that's painful for everyone. You might think you can just coast through it, but if you're in any of those sectors which are affected, which are cyclical sectors, things like banking, things like tech, where people, when they spend less, will cut back on their spending on your company's services and goods, then it becomes more likely that you're going to be laid off. And that's not pleasant for anyone. Job security suddenly becomes something which is really sought after, but difficult to find. So this is a kind of environment where you might be thinking about your own savings and thinking, well, if I was out of a job, how long would I be out of a job? How much money do I need to put aside? And maybe, you know, even more than that, because it might take longer than you expect to find a new job. And the other thing is
1: these kind of massive recessions often go paired with a banking crisis or some other financial crisis, don't they? Which compounds the problem.
0: Yeah, once you shake the tree, all of the bad apples fall out. And in 2000, for example, we had some of the big companies which went bust as a result of the exuberance that came before, like Enron. So usually when you do have one of these crises, there are kind of secondary crises. And I've got
1: written on my notes, like, what would the magnitude of the fall be, let's say, for stock prices? And I guess that's impossible to really quantify because it depends on the severity of the shock, but also the value of assets going into the shock, right? If valuations are stretched, I presume they've got much further to fall.
0: Which they are getting more stretched now. And I think that's made people nervous. I mean, just talking to people, I get a kind of vox pop all the time. And I know that people are getting more nervous now with valuations rising in the US. So I think you're right. I think if there is a higher valuation going into it, euphoria then the move to despair translates into a much larger peak to trough fall for risky assets like stocks.
1: And the thing is, with these kind of massive stock market falls of 50% or whatever it might be, in any one year, they're extremely unlikely. But if you're investing over
0: decades, they will happen. And this is why I think people should just mentally prepare for it, because it will happen, like you say. And if you're going to be investing for 10 years or longer, the odds of it happening are pretty high. Every decade or so, we get one of these big clear outs. You know, there was a decade when it didn't happen leading up to 2022, and that was pretty unusual. Usually you get them more frequently than that. Little mini crashes.
1: Okay, so when we're thinking about a scenario like this and looking at our own portfolio and maybe modeling it and trying to live with it and seeing what would happen, I'm guessing the starting point would be look at our equity allocation and cut the value of that in half. But then the question becomes, what's going to fall along with equity that's in my portfolio and what's maybe going to hedge it and provide some comfort in the troubling
0: times? It's important to understand what risky assets are. And by risky assets, I mean things that crash together when there is a kind of risk off movement globally. Now, stocks obviously come into the risky bucket. Cash falls into the safe haven bucket. Gold probably also sits in the safe haven bucket when there's a really severe crisis. It tends to hold up in terms of value. And in that safe haven bucket as well, there'd be short term government bonds. Those don't have a lot of duration risk. So it's simply the credit quality of the government which is at stake. And that in developed markets certainly is always absolutely above question. So talking about the risky assets in the risky bucket along with equity, one thing that's there which people sometimes get wrong is real estate investment trusts. Those aren't bond-like. They pay a high income, but they're highly correlated with equity. So stocks crash, REITs crash. Another thing which is risky would be corporate bonds and particularly high-yield corporate bonds. So for example, in 2008, those fell by about 40%. Investment grade fell by less, by about 20%. And here I'm talking about a diversified portfolio. So funds like LQD would be investment grade. HYG would be junk bonds.
1: So it's interesting that split in the bond market between the investment grade, good quality companies, and the more junky speculative companies. Does a similar thing apply in stocks? Because there's this idea of beta, isn't there? Are some stocks going to fall more in a big market sell-off?
0: Definitely. And here what you'd be looking for would be resilience. Usually emerging markets would fall by more than developed markets. They've got a higher beta. Also, growth stocks would usually fall by more because they're more cyclical, more sensitive to economic cycles, and small caps, because these tend to be small domestic companies which are less resilient. Their balance sheets probably couldn't survive such a big shock as, say, one of the huge energy conglomerates. Or Walmart. Or Walmart, or something which people have to do even during a crisis. So what would you go for? You'd go for those really safe sectors like utilities or consumer staples.
1: Well, if you knew it was going to happen, you'd go for none of the stocks, right? Yeah. You'd be purely in gold and government bonds.
0: Yeah, all that's going to do, these tilts towards factors or sectors, is mitigate the loss. You're not going to avoid a loss that way. And when you were talking about
1: the assets which sometimes do well, so you said short-duration government bonds, what about the longer-duration ones? Because they actually did really well in the global financial crisis.
0: Yeah, in the GFC, they were just stellar. Not just the GFC, but crises before that. You know, you've got 10%, 20% returns for long-term government bonds. And that's because the long end of the yield curve is growth sensitive. In other words, it prices in a certain level of GDP growth and inflation. And what people were expecting was lower inflation, lower growth. That pushed down yields and pushed up prices at the long end of the curve. And that massively benefited long-duration government bonds.
1: Bonds love misery.
0: Yeah. Bonds love misery. Equities love joy. They feed off different parts of the economic cycle, usually.
1: When you say usually, so is it not that
0: reliable? Well, 2022 tells us it's not reliable. Because if interest rates go up at the same time that you've got to fall in risky assets, then long duration is going to suffer a lot, which it did in 2022. I guess with yields
1: moving up and being higher now, bonds are potentially a better hedge because the yield can fall
0: more. Yeah, you can think of it as a kind of buffer. You've got a bigger buffer in terms of income, and they're just more attractive. If you want to buy a government bond, would you buy it if it's got a 5% income compared to 1%? Well, yeah, <laughs> it's much more attractive. So overall, bonds are more attractive now, and they do provide an alternative to stocks. And when you're thinking about portfolio, with the knowledge that
1: one of these big global recessions will happen at some point, stock values will get cut in half, is the question we should be asking ourselves, do we want to dial down the risk now because we're not confident that we can hold our nerve through one of these events? Or do we want to keep our maximal amount of stocks and just hold on for dear life, right? Right out the volatility. Is that the trade-off?
0: Yeah, I think it is. And I think you should always have a kind of adverse shock scenario for your own finances. Like, what if there was a recession and I lost my job? How long would I be able to survive on my savings? What if equity crashed at the same time as I lost my job? If all of your savings are in equity, then you've got a real problem on your hands. So don't put all of your investments, particularly the emergency savings, in something which is risky and likely to fall at the same time as you lose your job. Oh, definitely.
1: Personally, I would just feel so nervous if I didn't have at least six months of spending in cash, like in a bank.
0: I'm exactly the same. I'm too cautious. And in the past, that's hurt my wealth. You know, that's certainly been true. But, you know, bad things do happen. And if you do plan for them, you will be very glad of it.
1: And let's say one of these events does happen, like a global financial crisis again. How long does the recovery typically take? Or is that how long is a
0: piece of string? So in the past, I've looked at equity market recoveries. And I think the worst one was the double one between 2000 and 2013. Because just as the dot-com bubble aftermath had kind of ended, we got the global financial crisis. So we got two crises for one. And that meant the length of that drawdown, the period between the previous all-time high and the next one, was very long, at 12.7 years. The next worst one was in 1973, between 1973 and 1985. Again, almost 12 years. And that was because of the energy crisis and the very high inflation that followed.
1: And actually, that takes us nicely on to our second stress test scenario, which is persistent inflation. So how does this differ from the big recession scenario?
0: Well, you can get periods of growth combined with inflation, for starters. Now, that's not terrible for everyone. It's certainly not good for most people, but it does mean that at least you're going to keep your job, probably, going through the crisis.
1: And we'll probably get wage increases which keep up with inflation
0: or maybe even exceed it. And you could argue that that was actually the cause of sticky inflation that time around. What, in the 70s? Yeah, many people's work contracts in the United States at that time had inflation built in.
1: So each year it would say, what's inflation? And then you get an automatic pay rise of that amount.
0: Yeah, so if inflation started to pick up, it became almost like a momentum factor where wages would go up, people could spend more. Since then, we've essentially destroyed the unions in the US and largely in the UK. And very few work contracts now have those clauses built into them. So why does my mobile phone contract still link to inflation <laughs>
1: every year? It's like RPI plus 4%.
0: I know, it's ridiculous. I don't like that at all. Yeah, so if we go back to 1975, there was a spike in inflation. And then there was a secondary spike in 1980. And then the secondary spike, inflation in the US reached 14.6% at its peak. So it was very painful for many Americans.
1: And obviously that had a massive effect on asset prices. So I know that the Dow Jones fell by around 45% from peak to trough in 73, 74. And I think the UK did much worse than that. So our stock market fell by over 70% and then took a long, long time to recover. I think it's true that the UK stock market didn't return to the same level as the early 70s until 1987. So this is a big, long, painful stock market crash that went along with high inflation. And I guess the thing that differentiates a high inflation scenario from that recession scenario we talked about
0: is that bonds might not save you. Yeah, when inflation's high, it hurts bonds and it hurts stocks. And if you're above a kind of 5%-ish rate of inflation, that's when stocks tend to lose their inflation protection. Because at that point, usually companies are forced to cut their margins and they become less profitable and they sell off. And bonds are just going to respond to
1: rising yields and sell-off.
0: Yeah. Look, if you haven't got inflation-linked bonds, then inflation's your worst enemy, because you've locked in a fixed rate of return, and any kind of inflation is going to erode that. So clearly, nominal bonds, normal government bonds, are going to get completely killed by high inflation. And there was a very long drawdown period for US Treasuries during the 70s inflation period. I think this scenario is
1: particularly scary, if you're retired, because at least if you're working age, hopefully your salary is going to keep up with inflation more or less. Whereas if you're retired, and you don't have inflation-linked bonds, you're going to be losing money, a lot of money, every year in real
0: terms. And I think it's even worse if you look at 2022, because in that scenario, even if you had inflation-linked bonds, in the UK in particular, where they're very long duration, they got completely killed at the same time as stocks and normal government bonds. So even if you'd been careful and bought an inflation-linked bond fund, and a lot of these target retirement funds in the UK from Vanguard, for example, have a lot of linkers in them, it wouldn't have saved you because real yields rose at the same time as inflation spiked.
1: So what would save you if we got another decade of volatile and above-average inflation?
0: There's really not that much which can protect you. If you buy single inflation-linked bonds, that could be one way to mitigate the losses. Equity usually recovers eventually, so it's certainly been an inflation-busting investment in the past, historically.
1: You just have to hold on.
0: Yeah. It's just not pleasant. And returns are lower generally, real returns in these kind of periods.
1: And what about if we got the opposite situation? So stress test number three, deflation. Now, we don't talk about this very often because it doesn't happen
0: very often. It's really unusual. If you look back in time and count the number of periods where you get deflation, it's actually super rare. But when it does happen
1: and happen with some severity, it can be really, really nasty for assets.
0: But usually it's because of an underlying problem that you get deflation. Good job we've got no underlying problems, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but just think about it. Why would a company lower its prices It's only if they think their customers can't pay them. And that's because there's a fall in demand. So they just have to compete super aggressively with one another for diminishing demand. So it's really due to a demand collapse that you get deflation. So the kind
1: of archetypal and scary example of deflation has to be the Great Depression, especially in America. What happened there? We got the biggest stock market crash of all time. So US stocks fell by more than 85% and were depressed for the entirety of the 1930s and most of the 1940s, and only recovered when you got into the 1950s. Along with that, real GDP fell by almost 30% between 1929 and 1933. So that really is a Great Depression. Unemployment spiked to reach a peak of 25% in the United States in 1933. And the deflation element here is that consumer prices fell 25%. And wholesale prices plummeted by 32%. And along with all of this, you had the mother of all financial crises. So over 7,000 banks failed in the US. That's nearly a third of the banking system. So it doesn't get much more nasty than the Great Depression. And I'm not sure anyone's portfolio can withstand something like this.
0: Well... (laughs) Oh, you think they can? Okay, go on then. (laughs) Uh, No, I'm just thinking, you know, if you look back in time and look at volatility, the time when volatility was greatest... And by a long shot, not just a small amount, was during that sell-off around 1929. Now, if you could have gone long volatility at the time, which you kind of could, assuming your counterparty still existed after you came. Yeah, I was going to
1: say, assuming you've got
0: a counterparty to trade with. <laughs> <laughs>
1: what is it? A third of the banks have gone under here.
0: Yeah. So if the banking system survives and your counterparty survives, then being long vol would have just been an unbelievable trade. I love that you look back at the Great Depression and think, hmm, this is juicy for my
1: volatility (laughs) options.
0: But that would have done really well. And they were still on the gold standard. So the value of gold at the time was linked to the value of the dollar. And of course, during deflation, cash is king. So gold, cash, either of those would have been fine. You'd have been in really good shape.
1: Yeah, because if you've got cash in your pocket, it's just rising in real value every single day, right? Which then feeds into the deflation because people don't want to spend it because it's going to be worth more
0: tomorrow. It encourages you to hoard. And that was the problem. And eventually people come to the point where they realise assets are just so cheap that they start to buy again, I suspect. That's usually the recovery from this kind of crisis.
1: So why are these scenarios so rare? Maybe a one in a hundred year kind of thing. Is it because they're so scary for the central banks that they do anything in their power to stop this happening? they will just print money (laughs) until the cows come home.
0: Well, I think the adverse kind of scenarios in which it happens are very rare. Things have to be really, really bad for companies en masse to start cutting their prices. And I think that doesn't happen very often, fortunately. I
1: mean, when I've looked into some of the causes that were around at the time of the Great Depression, There was a lot of different things going on. So obviously, you went into it in 1929 with the mother of all speculative bubbles, like people on the street were taking crazy amounts of leverage to buy stocks, which pumped up this enormous bubble. And as we know with leverage, when the bubble unwinds, people go bankrupt. At the same time, global trade was contracting enormously. So in the US, there was the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. Which Congress signed in 1930, which basically put tariffs on goods from normal trading partners like Canada, the UK, and then obviously everyone responded in kind. And I think global trade fell by something like two-thirds. And also at the time, the Federal Reserve existed, but it wasn't quite as we know it today. So a lot of these banks that failed weren't part of the Federal Reserve System. And so when the bank runs started, the Fed didn't step in. They did cut interest rates to zero, I think, in nominal terms, but with deflation, real interest rates were very high still.
0: And so there was a bank panic and people caused runs on their banks because why wouldn't you? If you're going to lose your entire life savings, of course you're going to pull your money out and uh, move it into something which is tangible. And people did lose their life savings. And it was atrocious. And at the same time, you had agricultural crises. So for example, you have a dust bowl in the United States. And I heard a really good anecdote, which is that a loaf of bread just cost five cents because the price of wheat collapsed. But very few people could afford that five cents.
1: Yeah, I heard that people were eating whatever they could find, cat food, anything in the
0: United States. And now that's
1: unthinkable. So when it comes to my portfolio, I'm not even going to model something like this, right? I'm just going to have to put my faith in the powers that be that they would stop a second Great Depression. Because we came to the verge of it, I would say, in 2007, right?
0: But now that we do have bank guarantees, I think these bank runs are much less likely and it's much less rational to pull your money out because lots of deposits are guaranteed.
1: But in 2007, the major banks would have gone under without federal support.
0: That's right. We
1: came right to the brink. We just didn't quite fall off the ledge.
0: And we haven't really tested this bail-in system where shareholders and bondholders are now on the hook for bailing out banks. But I think it's much less likely to happen. I think there are more systems in place now to avoid these kind of destabilising economic outcomes.
1: I mean, I guess the other thing to say is that we could get deflation, which is not anywhere near as bad as the Great Depression, right?
0: Yeah, so Japan's been flirting with deflation for decades now, and it's come out of it okay.
1: And China is very much on the verge of deflation right now.
0: And I wouldn't be surprised if after this huge inflation spike, some places had a brief period of deflation as prices overshoot on a year-on-year basis.
1: And this is one of the things, isn't it, where expectations about inflation are key. If it's just a few years, people aren't going to hoard their cash. But if they expect deflation to last for a decade, then demand will collapse. Yeah. All right, let's move on to stress test number four, which I've called Cold War II. Now, this is kind of envisaging something we're seeing the seeds of at the moment, where the world effectively splits into two geopolitical trading blocks. So presumably that would be the West and maybe Japan and India, and then China, Russia, and whoever they can take with them in Asia on the other side. Now, the reason that would potentially have big consequences is because obviously over the last 20 years, trade between China and the US
0: especially has been so important for global growth. And China is now seen as pretty much the engine of growth globally. The US is certainly important, but China is arguably more important. So what would the consequences be if
1: we got some kind of split or decoupling, people call it, don't they? I mean, I don't know how realistic it is to get a complete separation, but we've seen with Russia that these kind of things can happen.
0: Now, Russia wasn't such a big deal because it's such a small economy with a focus on energy compared to China, say, which has huge global trading links and is so much more important for trade. So I think the initial shock would be huge and negative. Risky assets, I think, would take a big tumble. Now, some companies are more exposed to China than others, but I think there's going to have to be more spending by some companies in order to onshore some of the services which they got from China. There's also a problem with resources, because as the US has been very much focused on imaginary things, which is effectively software, China's been really doubling down on real things. (laughs) Those things like ores, which are really important when it comes to tech. So things like gallium and germanium, which can't really be substituted when you're manufacturing semiconductors. And what we find now is that China has very much a monopoly on the production of those. That's not to say they aren't available elsewhere, but it takes a while to get your infrastructure up and running to mine them.
1: I mean, there's definitely a chip war going on, isn't there? So the US has placed export bans on certain advanced microchips to China. China's kind of retaliating by limiting the export of some of these metals, like you say. And the question is, how widespread is this kind of trade war going to get? And I did read that now Mexico has surpassed China as the top trading partner for the US, which is quite a big change.
0: And it was a huge move. It wasn't a small move. If you look at America's total trade with other countries, China's just moved down hugely compared to Mexico. I mean,
1: there are other potential consequences here, aren't there? A lot of the reason why we've had quite contained inflation over the past 20 years has been because we've outsourced to China. They can make things cheaper. We can buy cheaper products. If that goes into reverse, then I think there is a case that we would see higher inflation going forward.
0: Yeah. I mean, that was the whole ethos behind a lot of this outsourcing you manufacture things where they're cheapest. And China is just really good at doing that. So we're going to have to find alternatives. And if we can't, then we're just going to have to pay higher prices. So
1: that's one thing to think through, the impact of inflation were we to get this scenario. But the other thing is that a lot of people have invested in Chinese equity from the West. And presumably that won't fare well if trade breaks down between China and the US. I mean, Chinese equity has not done well ever, really certainly not for the last 20 years, despite all the false storms along the way. But the risk is that you get something like happened with Russia, where the assets basically had to be written to zero.
0: We're not there yet, although I think we're probably not as far as I'd like to be from that scenario. The reason why is if, let's say, for example, they did invade Taiwan, the US has said that it would support Taiwan. And that means that effectively what was a cold war becomes not quite so cold after all. And I suspect there would be capital controls at the same time.
1: I mean, in terms of geopolitical risks, that's the one you look at and go, that could really crash the stock market, right, as well as all the other negative impacts from it.
0: But I think that's the way we should think of it. It would be an initial shock, but then gradually people would just adjust to the new world, in which there was just less trade and there were two trade blocks. But certainly for risky assets, it's those kind of shocks, the really short, sharp shocks and unpleasant news flow, which makes stocks crash. I mean, let's think through some of the potential
1: implications for a portfolio. I mean, the main one is what's your direct China exposure, right? Because I know a lot of people have overweighted China because it has looked a seductive trade for so long. It's the growth story. Valuations have been cheap sometimes.
0: Not only China, but also its allies, because if they're in the other block, then potentially the capital flows could be blocked for other countries.
1: But imagine they did invade Taiwan tomorrow, and it was like Russia, and all the stocks went to zero, the Western owners. There's probably a lot of people who would feel that painfully in their portfolio if they've overweighted China to 25% or something.
0: Or anyone who has broad EM exposure, where China makes up 30 to 40% of the index immediately that's going to be lost. That's the problem. It already has a big weighting in sovereign debt funds. So if you have EM sovereign debt, China will be a fairly big chunk of it. If you have EM equity funds, China will be a big chunk of it. And you're just going to have to write off that loss. And if you have exposure to, say, Australia, which hasn't really had a recession for two decades...
1: It's about time for the Aussies, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) They can't keep getting away with it.
0: (laughs) And it'll be interesting to see which side they would move to, because geographically, they're very close to China.
1: Yeah, they wouldn't be building all these nuclear submarines with us if they weren't going to pick our side, Roman.
0: The thing is, if economically it made sense, there would be a case for them to side with China and the Eastern Bloc. Culturally, that can't happen. I guess you're right. You know, There are culturally too many ties, but it'd be interesting to hear the debate. But it certainly wouldn't be good economically for them. I mean, what do you think about the likelihood of this scenario?
1: The other ones we say in any one year, they're very unlikely. And a Great Depression is you know, a once-in-a-century event at best. But this seems like it's something really worth thinking about.
0: The thing is, I'm a Trekkie, right? I still think that people usually act in a rational way for the greater good of most people. And if you believe that, you wouldn't split the world into two trading blocks. Now, history teaches us that people aren't... <laughs> Always rational. I mean, it's Cold War II for a reason, right? We've had this whole <laughs> thing before. But you know what I'm saying that really people would see that we'd all be poorer as a result of this kind of split, and that probably will keep that as a tail risk. The tail risk used to be a China hard landing. Now it's uh Cold War II, which is a much worse scenario and hopefully one that is less likely.
1: Okay, let's go on to our final stress test, which is the raging bull. Now, we've talked about lots of scary scenarios, but what if we don't get any of that? What if we get a repeat of the 2010s, where asset values went up massively, stocks, property, bonds as well, and you got scared now and went defensive early, and you miss out on all those great returns? Can you handle the opportunity cost and the FOMO? of not seeing your portfolio grow to the extent that everyone else is.
0: And that's why I think this phrase that bears make you sound clever, but bulls will make you money, works really well. If you are worried all the time and you always allocate for a tail risk, then you're not going to do very well over the long term. Most of the time, stocks do go up. And that's why it doesn't pay to be super scared. I think it pays to be psychologically prepared for crashes. Yeah but it doesn't really make sense to always be flinching at every single sound that you hear in the forest.
1: Every single wood chipper or lightning bolt outside. (laughs) (laughs) But that's why I put this scenario last, was because we've talked about doom and gloom. And I saw someone the other day on YouTube called you a doomster. Oh, that was funny. <laughs> Which you're not, right? You are 100% allocated to equity. Like, how can you be a doomster? But I wanted to put this last because even when you're thinking through all the big risks and you're saying, okay, stocks are fall 50% plus, let me prepare myself for that mentally. You don't want to go too far, presumably, and hurt your long-term returns.
0: Which is another reason why I think it's worthwhile kind of splitting up your allocation into different time periods. And money that you aren't going to touch for a long period of time, I think having that extra risk in that portfolio usually makes sense. What do you say to someone
1: when they come on a Power Hour with you and they say, Romin, I missed out on the massive bull run of the last 15 years because I kept fearing whatever it might be along the way, the aftermath of the global financial crisis, the sovereign debt crisis around Greece and Europe, COVID, whatever it might be, and they just missed out on all these returns. They
0: had too much cash or too many bonds. It does happen quite a bit, and people still have very large cash positions, which they've held for a long period of time. And we talk about base rates. We look at those long-term graphs, and I say, look, put these on your wall. (laughs) Print it out, (laughs) put it on the wall. You know, I joked about having a tattoo. Has anyone taken you up on that suggestion yet? No. But 6.5, 6.5% above inflation over 120 years, that's a pretty good record of beating inflation and crises and worries, even though you would have had a rough ride. You know, it wouldn't have been easy.
1: And allocating based on optimism is really the only way to go if you can't time markets. And people can't time
0: markets. But you are dependent on human nature and just hoping that politicians do the right thing. Now, a great way to overcome fear is to talk to people who are in the same boat as you. And we're all scared when it comes to investing. So why not join our community so that you can discuss this with the rest of us and put your mind at rest, or at least be aware of the risks. To learn more about that, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week
1: comes from Mark. And he asks, why haven't wealth preservation funds preserved our wealth this year? But he says, I thought these funds such as Ruffa and Capital Gearing Trust were supposed to be able to withstand market wobbles and downturns. Why has their performance this
0: year been so bad? In fact, we had a really good discussion with the fund managers from Ruffa. And we did this as a members only video. So if you join our community, you'll be able to see the interview. The fund managers were just great. I just thought they were really entertaining They talked about the way they see markets right now, but also the kind of way they operate, and the way they described it, I thought was great. Which is, they always buy the assets that people panic into. So let's say that they think people will buy gold, then they'll buy gold in case a crisis happens. Now, clearly, this can go wrong because (laughs) you know, if gold crashes after they buy that, and gold wasn't what they were using at the time. One of the things they discussed, which they were getting exposure to. Was credit derivatives, where you get a payout if the credit spread widens. Now, if you look at credit spreads at the moment, they still remain super tight. So I assume that trade's gone wrong. And that trade also comes with a negative carry. So you pay in order to hold that position. So I think really it depends on how do you buy assets? Which assets have you bought in case a crash happens? Are they derivatives? Do they cost in order to hold them? What's the carry cost of that trade and how large is the position that you've taken? I think that's
1: right. It's all down to asset allocation. So I looked into Capital Gearing Trust, which is the other one that Mark mentions. And from their monthly fact sheet, their latest allocation is extremely defensive. So allocation to funds and equities is just 27% of the portfolio. And if you break that down, it says properties 4% and equities is 11%. And then they've got some infrastructure and loans. So basically, we've had a massive stock rally this year. You know, NASDAQ's up 40-odd percent, and they've just not participated in that. But the price of their fund has been falling this year. So why has it fallen rather than just sort of stayed flat or whatever? Well, they've got 43% of the portfolio in index-linked government bonds and 15% in nominal government bonds. And yields have continued to increase this year. So I presume that's where a chunk of the underperformance has come from.
0: Yeah. So I think you have to take a view. And that's what they've done. And unfortunately, the view hasn't come to pass. So really, if you are hedging against these crises, what investors are assuming is that you're picking the right crisis and anticipating it correctly. Now, Ruff has been really good at that in the past. I think this time around, I'm not going to say they're wrong. They're only down about 8% since the peak that their fund achieved, if you look at their total return fund. But so far, at least, they've been wrong. Because the nasty stuff hasn't happened.
1: Roman, are they just early? Are they just early, not wrong? (laughs) (laughs) That's what
0: they would say. You know the kind of standard stock of excuses, don't you? Yeah.
1: If I'm looking at Capital Gearing Trust, they've got a nice chart in their fact sheet, which shows how that allocation's changed since 2011. So it's really cool to look at it over that period of time. And there was a big change towards the end of 2022 when they really did cut their equity allocation from something like 40 to 50% down to that 27% we've seen now. So they did make a move, arguably, at the wrong time, right, just as stocks started to pick up. Which was rational. And I presume it was because they looked at it and thought valuations are high, we don't see any reason for a rally, earnings are falling. (laughs) Like you can see the
0: logic. (laughs) And I've certainly got sympathy with that view. If I had to make a tactical call right now, it would be for a correction in stocks. It's just that these rallies last much longer than you'd think. And an upcrash is actually quite likely, while sentiment remains positive.
1: Well, now that we've got US inflation down to 3%, there is a bit of juice to run, potentially, in this rally.
0: Yeah. Why wouldn't people be optimistic about that? Even though we're in the middle of an earnings recession, you could say, well, People are just looking through this crisis. Eventually it's going to end, inflation will have come down, and the Fed can start to think about lowering its interest rate. And
1: I think the key thing about these funds, and any funds really, is that you have to look at them over the course of 5, 10 years of performance. You can't go, the six months we've just had at the start of 2023, they've fallen 8% or whatever you said, and therefore they've lost it. Right? They might just be early. Genuinely, they might be early. You have to look at it over the course of a decade. And they have done pretty well on a risk-adjusted basis. Because sometimes I think people look at these funds and think they'll never
0: lose money. They're somehow magic,
1: but there's no (laughs) magic fund.
0: (laughs) They're always going to make bad calls. They're going to be wrong. And that's how the market proves it to you. You lose money.
1: If something never loses money, you've probably got another Madoff on your hands.
0: Something doesn't add up. Yeah, that would be much worse. Thank you for joining
1: us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address
0: mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by
1: Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors
0: are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.